I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, boss. Word on the street is the diamonds will be there first thing in the morning. All right, so it's all set then. That's right. Uh, now it's time to pick the guys for the job. All right, Mario. Grab something to write with. These are the guys I want for this particular caper, and I will be using their nicknames to preserve the anonymities. I am ready when you are, boss. <clears throat> all right. For entry, I want Tiny, Big Ed, Toothpick, and Bald Roger. I got it. For counter-surveillance, give me kneecap, lawn chair, shoelace, stepladder, and cocaine Steve. Uh-huh. I want briefcase and shady band on crowd control with Fat Moby on a street uh-huh. sweeper just in case. All right. Put flying headbutt, hotel bathrobe, and Diggy McPickle in the vault. And uh, double-check that Sally Ball's brother, uh, what's his name? Nachos Belgrande? No, 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 his other brother. Neckbeard? Right, Neckbeard. Right. Make sure Neckbeard gets the right bags over to Biscuit and Rubber John. On transport, I want Dotson, Mellow Sunrise, Pit Stop, and I need one more guy. Uh, let's see, we got Robot. No. Smelly Wendy. Uh-uh. Danger Stool. No. Electric Dave. Uh, no, no. Hair Lip. Yeah, 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 nah. I'll take Hair Lip. And remind him to change the place this time. Armpit and sample size are doing a nickel for his little error last winter. Yeah. Now, when it's all over, make sure Garfunkel, Bottle Cap, and Dead Guy Pete are all ready to fence the goods. Boss, Dead Guy Pete is dead. No, not Dead Guy Pete. He was so full of life. Yeah. He was in the car with Definitely Alive Jim, and it blew up. Oh, not Definitely Alive Jim, too. What a no. waste. All right, fine. Tell Potato Face to hang a deuce and drop the ferret, okay? Yeah. Then Forehead and Pot Sticker will torch the office, and Meatball Sub will run up the flag. All right, now all we need is an inside man. I got a suggestion. He's a good guy, but he's got kind of a weird nickname. I don't like the sound of that. Who is it? It's, it's... called a sample size. Tonight, Ariane Cohen, creator of the Sex Diaries Project, moonwalking with Einstein author Joshua Four, and music from Carson Redheads. That's tonight on Livewire Radio.
Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hameister, and you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight, wherein Scott sits in our audience, and in just one hour, the amount of time it took Charles Dickens to come up with a street urchin name that rhymed with weeping, he writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned during the show. And, of course, music from our house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. Ralph. As I mentioned earlier, Ariane Cohen will be here later to talk about the Sex Diaries Project and what a person can learn from reading over 1,500 different diaries of relationships. And Joshua Four is also here. He is the author of Moonwalking with Einstein, The Art and Science of Remembering Everything. And the book has some truly amazing ideas and useful tools, uh, the ability to easily remember a 15-item list using simple and ridiculous imagery like Claudia Schiffer in a giant tub of cottage cheese. That is not a picture one would soon forget if you saw it in person or just in your head, really. We might not forget Claudia, but we forget things all the time, and more and more as we age and more and more as we digitize our lives and all the information in it. I used to have an encyclopedia's worth of useless pop culture facts in my head, but I don't need it now that Google exists. And it's as if my brain has learned that and has stopped storing any new pop culture facts. I have no idea what's happening with Lindsay Lohan right now, and it's upsetting. <laughs> and I don't, I don't want to remember everything. I just want to be able to choose the memories that my brain loses instead of having them chosen for me. I want to be able to trip on a crowded street, for instance, land on my burrito, then get up, and as I'm walking away, just pull on my earlobe and turn that memory off like a light bulb switch. Don't need that one. Oh, and while I'm at it, I don't need to remember the look the burrito lady gave me when I asked for extra sour cream, and the disastrous date I had the night before where I was so nervous my stuttering reached Hugh Grantian proportions. And then I made a Hitler joke in an attempt to seem edgy. <laughs> but what would happen if I was able to delete every mistake I made, every bad choice as it happened? What would be left? It reminds me of the story of Dirk Halstead. He was the photographer who shot that famous photo of Bill Clinton leaning in to hug Monica Lewinsky at a crowded fundraiser in 1996. And when the Lewinsky scandal broke, Halstead remembered that he'd seen that face, but he couldn't remember where. He believes that every time he clicks his shutter, his brain records a sort of a ghost of that image. It's what uh, Four mentions in his book as unconscious remembering or priming. So Halstead hired a researcher who went through his piles and piles of slides, and he found a single image in 5,000, a seemingly completely forgettable image that no one else had from that night. Why? Because they were all shooting digital and he shot on film. The digital photographers just dumped all their images, deleted them, because at that point, that young brunette was of no consequence. So as it turns out, some of our mistakes are of great consequence. Some mistakes make history, but all of our mistakes make us. I am the one who chose the most neurotic cat in the litter. <laughs> I am the one who chose to supersize everything. I chose to see Xanadu four times. I'm the one who backed up so far to take a picture that she backed right off of a boat. I'm the one that stood on the high dive for 20 minutes before finally turning around and climbing back down the ladder 
through a sea of icy stairs. I'm the one who proudly wore a Sean Cassidy concert t-shirt and was a complete a-hole for my entire 13th year. I'm the one with the heart that broke when it broke and the heel that did the same, both accidents sending me tumbling further than I thought possible, but both accidents sending me here. Linda Berry said it best when she said, if my life had a delete key, it would be 27 minutes long. So I suppose I'll just hold on to my mistakes and trust that my memory knows what it's doing. But if it could just stop playing back that burrito incident on a constant loop, that it would be great. Thank you. Thanks, David. Tonight's band is the Parson Redheads. They were named after a misreading of the name of a band that played with Benny Goodman in the 50s but never recorded called the Pearson Redheads. In the band's eight-year lifespan, their psychedelic folk sound and four-part harmonies have created a large Northwest fan base, and now they're slated for a U.S. tour with another great Northwest band, Blitz and Trapper. With songs from their second album, Yearling, please welcome the Parson Redheads.
Welcome to the show. Thanks for this having is us. Evan Way, the lead singer. And you're the principal songwriter for the band. Would you say yeah, that? Yeah, me and Sam write all the songs. But yeah. We kind of Uh-huh. <laughs> it's interesting because uh, as I was listening to this record, uh, you spent some time, you spent about, was it five years in Los Angeles? Yeah, a little bit over five years. So you went to Los Angeles to really work on the band yeah. and practice quite a bit. What did you learn in L.A.? Um... I mean, we learned how to be a band, pretty much. I mean, so how did that? How does that happen over the course of five years? We went years? down there and we played our first show, and we were terrible. And the <laughs> other bands were awesome. And I was like, we're gonna have to actually practice. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. And yeah. So we practiced like way too much, like to the point where we were all going crazy. Mm -hmm. But it was really good because yeah. we got better pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> now, why didn't you just stay in LA? Um, I don't know, it was just kind of time for a change of lifestyle. Um, mm -hmm. We wanted to, like, we were doing a lot of music, but we were also having to work a lot, and we kind of needed to be able to focus on music and not be stressed that we were going to be homeless, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> That's not fun. It's a stress you don't want to have to deal with. When no, you're... absolutely not. Um, I did actually read uh, that, that your father uh, is a minister. Yeah. And, and, and interesting that you're called Parson Redheads. Um, our audience should know that there are redheads in the band. Yep. Uh, our radio audience. Um, so what kind of music did you grow up with? Um, all sorts of music. Uh, my dad's favorite, he, lo he loves John Denver, <laughs> which he's passed on to me. Great. Love John Denver. And he loves Andre Bocelli. You know, the wow. blind opera singer? That's quite the yeah. span. I'm not so into the Bocelli. But he would wake me up all the time with Andre Bocelli and laugh at me. 
It's um, a nice way to wake up. So I woke up with that. Like, I mean, I don't know. My mom's a musician. She plays percussion and piano and, you know, lots of, like, 70s Christian folk rock groups, like Second Chapter of Acts and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff I still listen to. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there were probably quite a few harmonies in those bands. Oh, yeah, the best. The best. <laughs> yeah. Choirs, probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, the record is, is great. Uh, the record is Yearling. And then you also have an EP out right now. Yeah, we, it, it's like we have the copies now. It's officially out everywhere on the 20th. But It's called Murmurations. Yeah. And uh, people can just try to, try to think of how to spell that. I'm not going to help you. Uh, it's not that hard. <laughs> you just have to say it slow and you'll figure exactly. it out. Murmurations. Uh, that's the EP, it. and uh, we'll see you guys later in the show. You're going to cool. come back and, and play another song for us. Thanks so much for joining us, Parson Redheads. If you've just joined us, you're tuned in to Livewire Radio, and thanks for listening. And no, you're not experiencing deja vu. It's just summer, and our cast and crew are all oiled up by the pool, so this is a rebroadcast of the show. If you're in the Portland area, our live tapings start again on Saturday, September 8th at the Alberta Rose Theater. You can find more information on those shows and how to help sustain LiveWire's future at LiveWireRadio.org. We'll be right back. Judge Bernstein, Los Angeles County Traffic Court is now in session. Be seated. Uh, Carlotta, what's first on the docket? Uh, Mr. Draven Trask, charge of everything. Everything? Everything. Um, Mr. Trask, you are charged with everything. Every single moving violation several times. Your Honor, I'm here to contest these spurious charges. I'm a legitimate businessman. I've been the victim of a systematic campaign of harassment by your Detective Ace Striker. Mr. Trask, we will get to your countercharges later. First, we'll hear testimony of the arresting officer, Detective Ace Striker of the Extreme Crime Squad. Detective Striker, when did the defendant first come to your attention? Ma'am, I noticed the accused traveling down I-99, clearly en route to the Croatian consulate, which, as you know, has no extradition treaty with the United States. I have legitimate Croatian concerns. Anyway... Right before my penthouse apartment mysteriously exploded, I discovered that Mr. Trask had in his possession this attaché case full of stolen microchips. 
and a kilo of super cocaine. Your Honor, it's medicinal super cocaine. Okay. Detective Stryker, Mr. Trask, this is traffic court. Please limit your testimony to the moving violations. Detective, what was the defendant driving? He was in a mostly bulletproof Rolls-Royce Camarogue. I caught up with him in my unmarked Lambo silhouette. There was a thrilling acceleration sequence where he flew past afternoon commuters as helicopters roared overhead in slow motion. At this point, we were both going about 90 down the interstate. So that's the first violation, speeding. Yes, it turns out jumping an overpass isn't in the traffic code, but he was definitely speeding. Okay, uh, what about the improper passing? He drove through a produce stall. Well, you hit a baby carriage that only afterward turned out to be empty. I'm not proud of that. And then we have a failure to yield at a four-way stop? Your Honor, my car was on fire. And the excessive acceleration? I thought that would put out the fire. (laughs) Seriously. I'd like to state for the record that the only reason his car was on fire was because he tried to sideswipe an oil tanker into an oncoming school bus. Oh, and that gives you the right to blow it up all over my car? You killed my partner at his own retirement party. It was my twin brother who killed him. Who, it is worth pointing out, you later impaled on the space needle. He was trying to throw me out of his helicopter, which you tried to do last summer. I'm sorry if I get you two mixed up. You've both tried to kill me with helicopters. Okay, so there's a charge of ejecting a passenger from a moving helicopter? Your Honor, this man shot at my helicopter with a rocket launcher. Detective Stryker is clearly racially profiling affluent helicopter enthusiasts. Can we please get through this list of citations? Uh, What about the defective taillights? Yeah, he shot them out. Uh, Hazardous exhaust? He had a flamethrower in his trunk. Driving the wrong way. There are no signs in the shopping mall. (laughs) Improper child restraint. Threw a baby at me. It was in a car seat. Weaving. Your Honor, at that point, we were driving through the Glendale Galleria, and Detective Stryker was standing astride his car, firing at me with a gun in each hand. In that situation, weaving is the only responsible thing to do. Okay, I think I've heard enough. Mr. Trask, you are hereby fined $28,653. Aww. Yippee-ki-yay, Detective Stryker. For your role in this, you are fined one gun and one badge. Oh, uh, you know the regs. Striker, loose cannon, etc., etc. Uh, Carlotta, who do we have next? Uh, next up, we have uh, the Transformer Optimus Prime. He is charged with turning into a robot while traveling down I-90. <laughs> Host Trisha Ferguson, Andrew Harris, and Sean McGrath with sound effects by David Ian. A note for our listeners, Uh, there is a high possibility that our next segment is going to contain references to and discussion of sex things. You have been warned. Next on the show is a writer and advocate for tall people and the author of three books, including The Tall Book, Confessions of a High School Word Nerd, and now The Sex Diaries Project, What We're Saying About What We're Doing. The Sex Diaries Project involved collecting the sex diaries of over 1,500 people, then disseminating that information down to just 40 stories that represent people's most intimate thoughts and desires to help us figure out the meaning of our own. Here to talk about those stories is Ariane Cohen. (laughs) 
welcome to the show, Ariane. Thank you for having me. So I see that we have about eight minutes to improve the romantic lives of, let's just say, that at least three listeners. I think we can do at least four. Oh, well, let's do four. Let's do four. Um, so for me, one of the most helpful passages in the book was uh, when you discussed the secret to happiness. Can you talk about what that is? Absolutely. So uh, happy diarists, they tend to have two things in common. They are very familiar with their own needs. They know what they want sexually. They know what they want emotionally. And they know what they need in terms of uh, like lifestyle, daily support. And they feel like they're on the path to meeting them. So that doesn't mean that their lives are great. It just means that they feel like they're moving in the right direction and taking steps uh, to eventually meet their needs. Okay. And the, the diarists that you actually... This, these, are, these are all different types of people, all different ages, and in all different situations. Yeah. Yeah. And do you have any examples of diarists that were happy or on the way to being happy? Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's people whose lives aren't necessarily going very well. There's um, a, a bunch of diarists who were in the midst of marriages that they weren't particularly happy with, but they, they had, you know, committed to uh, couples therapy or decided that they were going to get a divorce. And there's a lot of calm that comes with that when people are like, all right, this is what I need. I'm not getting it. So I'm going to take these steps. It's the people who have no idea what they want, who are filled with a lot of angst and they tend to blame their partner. They say, I am sad, and it is because of you. Yeah. When in, yeah, when in actuality, it's just that they haven't really thought about right. what they need and thought, thought to, here's an idea, ask for it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you had, a couple, um, you had a couple examples of diaries that you wanted to have faces for radio. Yeah. Of, of, these were or two, a couple different kinds of happy people, right? Yeah. yeah. Very, there's many different paths to happiness. Um, the first one is uh, he's the resident Lothario of the book. He's 30, and he lives in Camden, New Jersey, and he's dating roughly a half dozen women women. Saturday, 11.45 a.m. Uh-oh, voicemail from Jennifer. She called at 11 p.m. We've been hooking up for two and a half years. 12 p.m. Just did the state of the relationship talk with Jennifer, which we have every two weeks. Basically, she doesn't think I give her enough detail of where we're at. I say, I'm close to making a decision. She says, I've been waiting patiently, and I'm sick of this. And I'm like, okay, you got to do what you got to do. <clears throat> you got to do your thing. And she says, why don't you just break up with me? I tell her about all my girlfriends. She knows more than any of them. She says, at least you're honest. And by the end of the conversation, she's somewhat reassured. And she loves me again. <laughs> That's a happy guy. Exactly. <laughs> And then you have something on a completely different spectrum this of is, happy. This is one of my favorite diarists in the book. She's a grandmother. She's 80 years old. She lives in San Francisco, and she's kind of pleasantly caustic. Sunday, 11.33 a.m. Had my hair done this morning. Looks good. There are two people in my life who say, Nancy, you should date. My daughter-in-law, who is lucky I'm still talking to her, and my hairdresser. To me, it's too much work. I'm a different generation. The women stay home and take care of family and the man. Heck no. If a man asked me for a cup of coffee, I'd say, well, there's the kitchen. <laughs> Monday, 9.30 a.m., cooking a pot of oatmeal. Want comfort and love? Cook yourself some oatmeal. <laughs> Whole oats, of course, not the instant kind. Dreams are made of this stuff. <laughs> Trisha Ferguson, thanks, Trisha. 
I think, and, and especially, I think that, that that diary in particular illustrated something that people have a hard time believing that people can be happy alone. But when you read her diary, you really believed she was. You know, did, did you get that a little bit where, where people were alone and should have been happy, but because they believed that it was a myth, they weren't? Oh, absolutely. And in her particular, she was married for 40 years, and, and I had no idea she was going to write that. I thought that she was going to be kind of very couple-centric, and she's absolutely not. Um, about 80% uh, of the diarists um, intend to be in, in monogamous relationships. They, they're looking to be in part of a couple. Um, but only 40% of them, maybe 45%, are actually doing that at any one time, which leaves, you know, half of people who are doing something else. And a lot are what I call soloists, which is what this woman is. Uh, she's meeting her own sexual, emotional, and lifestyle needs and is very happy doing that. So what are some of the other misconceptions that end up making people unhappy or having them not get what they want sexually? You know, I was brought up that, with the idea that sexual compatibility is rare, that, you know, if you find somebody and you have banging sex with them, you should really, you know, pay attention to that. So um, let me break down the numbers for you. I've read something like 2,500 or 3,000 diaries now, and everybody talks about their previous lovers. So that means that I've read maybe like 10,000 couplings and, and groupings. Um, and and <laughs> about a third of them were really good really great, maybe amazing. And that's a lot. That's a really lot. And, and what that says to me is that humans are really designed to have great sex with each other. And, and you know, finding all the other stuff, like somebody who's compatible with your lifestyle and your personality and all your needs, that's harder to find. But people, you know, great sex is really pretty easy to find. And, and <laughs> you don't need to worry about that. Right. So, and over the course of doing this whole thing, your own story changed, like your own view of sexuality changed while you were working on this project. Absolutely, it was revolutionized. The book just exposed me to a whole um, litany of ways of doing things, of ways of doing relationships other than monogamous coupledom. So, I mean, right now I'm in an open relationship that could change. I'm not, you know, a particular. I, I, I'm not particularly for one kind of relationship or another. But um, I just became exposed to all the options, and and it's really changed my life quite a bit. Well, and and <laughs> uh, one of my favorite quotes from the book uh, is. Uh, this is, you wrote this. The, the truth is that falling in love is often a predictable mix of compatible biochemistry and aligned priorities. <laughs> Were you always a romantic or did writing this book turn you into one? <laughs> this I mean, did you find doing this book you just are, you know, you're not romantic at all anymore? Uh, this book has really, it's turned me into a bit of a, of a Borg. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, I think falling in love is really predictable. I think that, you know, the unique parts of a relationship that people create are really quite unique. But, I mean, think about how many breakups I've read and how many people saying, you know, our, our relationship was so special and now it's over. I call that the tyranny of the special because everybody says that. <laughs> and um, and it's, it's not quite true. I mean, we're designed to fall in love, and we do, and then we fall out of love. So. Did you ever read a diary that was written at the beginning of a relationship and know exactly what it was going to look like because you'd already read it through another story? Yeah, sometimes I just want to like delete and like cut paste with another diary and be like, this is what's going to happen to you, but... 
Instead, I have to watch you go through this. <laughs> right, right. So moving forward, I mean, there's still the website, mm -hmm. um, and it's just, is it the Sex Diaries Project? Yeah, sexdiariesproject.com. People so, can come keep their own anonymous diaries anytime that they would like. And moving forward, what's, what's going to happen with the, with the project? Uh, we're getting a TV show that's based uh, on, the, uh, on the concept. To oh, that's pilot. great. So, yeah. Yeah, you're, and you're just you're working on that right now? Mm-hmm. That's great. We gave women flip cams, uh, and they keep video diaries, basically. They just talk to their camera all the time. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the book is The Sex Diaries Project. What we're saying about what we're doing, the author is, uh, is uh, Ariane Cohen. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, everybody. <laughs> Look for the TV show. In honor of Arianne Cohen's Sex Diaries Project, Livewire did some digging to see if we could find any famous sex diaries. What we uncovered is a very lurid story from the March 16th, 1982 issue of Penthouse Forum, written by a current Republican presidential frontrunner. And even though it's nearly 30 years old, we feel it could be a campaign bombshell. Dear Penthouse Forum, my name is Rick S. and I'm a young, exceedingly handsome aide for a Washington politician. I know you're not going to believe this, but every single word is completely true. Recently, I went on an unchaperoned evening outing with a female Presbyterian woman. I know what you're thinking, and yes, everything you've heard about Presbyterian women is true. She was 5'6", brown hair, with a body for procreation, covered head to toe in floral Laura Ashley. During dinner, I could tell she was impressed with my Bible knowledge, my frugal conservative tipping, and my unwillingness to separate church and state ever. The walk back to the car after was charged with the possibility of heterosexual skin contact. Now, penthouse, I'm kind of a risk taker. So without first calling her father to ask for permission, I reached down and grabbed her hand with my hand. I did it. Things were getting steamy in a hurry. For him, I leaned in close and laid a kiss right on her forehead with both lips. I knew I'd be in confession for weeks for that one. But a man has to live. Wow, it sure feels good to get that off my chest for him. I'll write back after our second date. The new Ryan O'Neill movie is playing at the Singleplex, and I'm hoping to kiss some wrist. Oh, yeah. Sincerely, Rick.
After being assigned a story on the 2005 U.S. Memory Championship for Slate Magazine, author Joshua Four spent a year with memory expert Ed Cook learning how memory works. In 2006, Joshua set a new U.S. record at that same competition by memorizing the order of a deck of cards in a minute 40 seconds. That record has since been broken, but a more important result of Joshua's work is his book, Moonwalking with Einstein, The Art and Science of Remembering Everything. It's a compelling study on how and why we remember what we remember and forget what we forget. The book is now a New York Times bestseller and was just released in paperback. Please welcome Joshua Four to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Joshua. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> so let's just talk initially about how you got into this. You were okay. assigned this story. And I think probably most journalists would write the story and they'd be done. But what, what drew you back to the memory competition? I was like totally fascinated with these people who are able to memorize entire poems, hundreds of random numbers, shuffled packs of playing cards. I thought, these are freaks of nature. <laughs> this is unbelievable. And I started talking to them and they were like, we're not freaks of nature. Anybody can do this. You could do this. And I thought, well, that can't be right. Mm -hmm. uh, I need to investigate that further. Mm -hmm. And did you learn anything at that point, or was it when you actually connected with Ed Cook, who ended up being your... He's a memory expert. He's British. Yes, he is British. He's brilliant. He's a little bit eccentric. Uh -huh. uh, he said to me, you're an American journalist. Do you know Britney Spears? <laughs> and I was like... No. <laughs> Why? And he said, because I really want to teach Britney Spears how to memorize the order of a shuffled pack of playing cards on U.S. national television. It'll prove to the world that anybody can do this. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm not Britney Spears, but maybe you could teach me. You got to start somewhere. And mm -hmm. that, that's how, what ended up turning into this book. Well, and, and it, it, was com it was completely fascinating to, to see the tricks that he was teaching you. And for me, the, the most compelling thing, and it seemed like the biggest tool, was the memory palace. Can you talk about the memory palace? Okay. Yeah, the memory palace is this idea that goes back uh, 2,500 years to ancient Greece. It was supposedly invented by this poet called Simonides. And it's this technique that was once... I mean, this was the technique that Cicero used when he memorized his speeches. And it involves creating this imaginary building in your mind's eye and populating it with images of things that you want to remember. And it doesn't sound like this should be a way, an effective way of remembering stuff. That's what I thought when I right. first heard about it. It turns out to be extraordinarily effective. It, it, it was amazing. And you actually take, uh, you, you take the reader through the first time that you ever were taught the Memory Palace by Ed, and there's 15 items on it, and you essentially have the reader go through the same steps that you do. I went through the steps, and it was immediate. I mean, I remembered all of them immediately. I didn't have to read back. It yeah, was no, extraordinary. I, mean, it, I still think that I remember them now. It's freaky. It's freaky. And, <laughs> but what's crazy is once upon a time, 
people used to know about this and use this because they had to rely on their memories in a way that we don't today. Mm-hmm. And I think the what drew me to this subject was the weird realization that how is it possible that I had never heard of this before? Yeah. How is it possible that I have no familiarity with this? And I'm like a, you know, I think I'm a pretty educated guy. Uh, and then once I sort of started pulling at this thread, it turned out that there is an incredible history to be told about how we people used to remember stuff and how we don't really have to do that today. Well, and that's another thing that you talk about in the book, the fact that we have outsourced our memories to technology, to our phones, to our computers. Do you think that's a good thing? I think it's a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, you know, so in the book I talk about how 2,500 years ago, Socrates was up in arms about this new invention called writing. And he was like, writing is going to make people stupid. (laughs) People are going to start taking ideas out of their minds, putting them down on papyrus, and thinking that they're still smart. And that's the same argument you hear people making today about, you know, God, we're so reliant on our smartphones. Um, And Socrates was right in a way. We, we did stop using our memories in the way that we once did. But he was also wrong, because writing made possible all sorts of great stuff. Um, and I think the same thing is going to end up being true of this kind of transformation that we're in the midst of right now, where we're using technology as this kind of outsourced memory for us. Well, are we... My question is, is are, we, are we opening up space for more important things than phone numbers and who that guy was in that movie? What could possibly be more important than phone numbers? Right. Are we doing that? Or, it, it, because it feels to me like it's a muscle that is just becoming worthless. You know, connecting to information is... It feels like it's a muscle and there are pathways and those pathways are just essentially drying up. I would say, look... We are definitely all better off for not having to remember phone numbers, right? Thank God our iPhones can do that for us. But I would say the other side of the coin is, you know, there are lots of things that we don't want to outsource to technology, lots of memories that we actually kind of want to hold on to with all of the sort of intangible qualities that memory has. And more and more, we're relying on Facebook and Twitter and our unlimited gigabyte email archives to basically remember for us. And I think we haven't fully reckoned with what the costs of that is going to be to kind of our, our human dignity and sense of humanity. But. Right. Um, if you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to Livewire, and we're talking to Joshua Four, the author of Moonwalking with Einstein. One of the things that you talk about in the book that fascinated me as well is the fact that our memories actually change. It's not just that they fade, but they change. How does that happen? Well, so every time we revisit a memory, it's not like we're reaching into some sort of a, you know, uh, a, a safe and pulling something out. Every time we, we think about a memory, we actually change it a little bit because we're thinking about it in the light of who we are at that moment. And who we are at this moment is different from who we were at that moment when we had that memory. Yeah. And over time memories have a habit of kind of changing. And because we're a different person every time we think about this and we're inflecting that memory with all of the things that are sort of going through our minds at this moment, our memories change. 
Which is, it just, I find it interesting because I, f- I feel like so many people sort of define themselves by their memories. They're, they believe that their memories are who they are. So if you can't necessarily trust your memories, then you sort what of have to... What can you trust? It's, exactly. Right? right. Yeah, no, we're, we're, just a, we're, we're, we're all just a whack, walking pack of lies. It's true. <laughs> Um, and, and there's a great quote from Ed in the book. Uh, he, he's from Ed Cook, your memory coach. He said at one point, I'm working on expanding subjective time so it feels like I live longer. <laughs> How do you do that? I did mention that he's a little bit eccentric, right? <laughs> right, you did. Um, well, there's an old idea that goes back to William James, sort of the, the great, uh, greatest American psychologist of the last part of the 19th century, who argued that, look, our experience of time's passage is actually shaped by our experience of memories. And the more we pack our lives with memories, the slower time seems to fly by. It's part of the reason that as we get older, life seems to fly by faster, because we're just not having as many new, interesting, memorable experiences. And so Ed was like, aha, what I need to do is make sure that I'm doing something every day that is wacky and crazy and new and memorable, and life will seem to fly by slower. Right. Uh, and I don't know, sounds a little bit plausible to me. It does. I mean, well, and it, it feels like, of course, you're, it, you're not only going to feel like you're living longer, but your life will be fuller. It seems like a win-win there to me. Yeah, I think it's a win-win. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just, there was, there was a story of a person in the book named Gordon Bell. And can you talk about what Gordon was trying to do? Gordon is a uh, researcher at Microsoft who wears a little camera around his neck. And everywhere he goes, he's recording everything. Recording sound, recording video. Because, you know, since we have these hard drives and computers capable of storing everything and offloading our memories, why not just use them for everything? And so he's creating this digital memory that can, uh, he would say, supplement I might argue, supplant his, yeah. the memory in his brain. This is where everything is headed. I mean, this sounds kind of freaky, but this is, this is where we're headed. We are all going to be doing this in 5 or 10 or 15 years. I don't know how long it's going to take, but, you know, we're all going to be recording everything. We already are. I mean, everybody's got Twitter, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm eating a burrito. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so the, the, the memory competition was... Six years ago now? Five years ago. It was a while ago, yeah. It was a while ago. Um, But one of my... (laughs) It was... He doesn't know. He doesn't remember. I forgot. But this was one of my favorite... One of my favorite stories in the book was... Can you you tell me the story of what happened with your car uh, just a few days after you won the U.S. memory competition? So, I won this U.S. memory contest and set this record for memorizing a pack of cards. And I went out for an celebratory dinner with some friends the night afterwards, or two nights afterwards. And I was walking in to my house and realized, oh, I took the subway home, but I drove my car to dinner. (laughs) I hadn't... I hadn't just forgotten where I parked the car. I had forgotten that I had a car. So it's flawed. There's some flaws in the system, is what we're saying. It's, uh, I'm not perfect, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Um, well, it's been a pleasure having you, and I highly recommend the book. Um, you, you actually, you take people through the memory palace, and this is a skill that you can absolutely use. Um, the book is Moonwalking with Einstein. Uh, the author is Joshua Four. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Tonight's show is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market and the Whole Planet Foundation, hoping to help a million more people in global communities to change their own lives through grants to microfinance institutions. More information can be found at wholeplanetfoundation.org. Feed your brain at Whole Foods Market. We'll be right back. And now it's time for some teeny tiny tales, some Lilliputian literature. It's time for Livewire's Flash Fiction. Tonight our audience has been given the Herculean task of writing an entire story in just six words based on the prompt, a memory I'd rather forget. Members of Faces for Radio Theater have their top picks and will now read them with the help of band leader and part-time William Shatner personal stand-in, Ralph Huntley. And now, flash fiction. Donna writes, eating last rotating hot dog at Chevron. <laughs> Podge writes, vomited on shoes. Not my shoes. <laughs> Jessica writes, Foot stuck in toilet, call 911. <laughs> Jay writes, never argue with a Tijuana pimp. <laughs> Gabrielle writes, so about the car, Dad. Sorry. <laughs> Greg writes, naked, drunken, glass blowing. Once is enough. <laughs> Great job, audience, on Flash Fiction. <laughs> Flash 
Flash Fiction was brought to you tonight, as always, by New Belgium Brewing Company, this month featuring their Dig Pale Ale. With four distinct hops and a burst of lemon and passion fruit aromas, the deepest you'll have to dig is your kitchen drawer for an opener. Dig that. Thanks, New Belgium. And now, once again, Parson Redheads. Now, as promised, the man who has been writing the entire hour while we've been playing. To sum it all up for us, please welcome Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I can't remember what I learned tonight. (laughs) Crap. 
I think my mnemonic for it had something to do with a unicorn and Claudia Schiffer and a tub of cottage cheese. Or was it candy corn and cottage cheese on a dirt clod? I can't remember. I think I need some strategies for memorizing the disjecta headed to populate the apartments of my poems like Parson Redheads hopping a dusty freight to my mind central city to let me know the beautiful association to every minute minutia. Like pilgrims headed for a place full of crime and garbage and angry businessmen delivering messages they've already forgotten the impetus for. For traveling Parson Redheads, I'd love to have a welcoming committee at the tracks. I think in the freight yard of my mind, I'd like that line of servants they have in the old British masterpiece theater movies at the front door of the mansion to greet them, to take their luggage, to greet them with bonhomie and cheer, and show them to their room full of fresh flowers and murals of ponies. <laughs> Which reminds me of a time in fifth grade when I was scared of just about everything, especially anything cute especially girls who had pictures of unicorns on their walls in front of sparkly rainbows. And I didn't want to go into dark alleys, not because they'd be full of murdering miscreants, but because I was afraid of rainbows and kittens and unicorns running crap games with other dirty, cute unicorns might be in there. <laughs> A dark alley because the entrance to the alley is stuffed full of looky-loo teddy bears. The kind of teddy bears you normally wouldn't associate with unless you were desperate for a hug and it didn't care where you got it from. <laughs> teddy bears with names like kneecap and lawn chair and fat mopey and hotel bathrobe and neck beard. Wait a minute. Where the hell was I? I'm not sure, but I remember the mnemonic. It had something to do with Penthouse Forum and Rick Santorum, alone with a deck of playing cards. The playing cards each had the face of Britney Spears, and she had a sword in her hand, and she was stabbing Socrates, who had a word balloon coming out of his mouth that says, Don't write. Writing is going to make people stupid. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests tonight, Ariane Cohen, Joshua Foyer, and Parson Redhead. The Mutton Shops are Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Paul Brainerd, now featuring their new record of 99 songs of 30 seconds or less at mchops.com. Tonight's show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Dave's Killer Bread, and Burgerville, introducing Burgerville Radio, featuring music from Northwest musicians in all their restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners like you find people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hameister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hameister, performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson, with sound effects by David Ian. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse and house poet Scott Poole. Our guest writer this show was Ben Coleman. Faces for Radio Theater is directed by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom, with house sound by Scott McLeod. Stage management by Graham Nystrom. Thank you to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Von Drele and Ralph Huntley. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. 
For more information about LiveWire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit LiveWireRadio.org. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of LiveWire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the LiveWire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are LiveWire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about LiveWire. And thank you.